You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcasts. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, Simon Erickson and I discuss how COVID-19 is impacting the stock market, his investing principles, how he picks stocks, and which stocks are on his watch list. Simon is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing and was previously lead advisor at The Motley Fool. You'll hear throughout the episode that we talk about the current conditions in the stock market and we do mention exactly when we recorded this as a point of reference. It was recorded back in late March 2020, not long after things in the stock market had collapsed, but before they had really started the rise we've seen over the last few weeks. That said, the information is still very relevant, Simon is a great guest, and shares a ton of fantastic information. I hope you guys enjoy this great conversation with Simon Erickson. 
You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I am very excited to have Simon Erickson. Welcome to the show, Simon. Robert, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm personally familiar with you from your time with The Motley Fool. But for those listening who may not be familiar with you, walk us through your background and tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. I am a self-described growth style investor. I'm really obsessed with innovation and all the new things that are kind of cutting edge that are taking place out there. And as you mentioned, I ran a service, The Motley Fool, for the last four years that was focused on those innovative trends that were taking place and what that would really mean for investors. And so that's brought me today to, to found a new company called Seven Investing, where we're really keeping that same innovative flavor, but we're trying to encourage people to take a more active role in their own investing future. Throughout today's show, I want to talk about some of your investing principles, how you analyze specific companies, what you mean when you say that now is a good time for investors to be quote unquote upgrading their portfolio. We want to talk a little bit about current economic conditions, and then we'll tie it all together to wrap up the show with a few of your favorite stock picks right now. So let's start with your investing principles. I've seen you talk about how investing is personal. What do you mean by that? Well, I think everybody is investing for different reasons out there. We are not alike. And we really should embrace the fact that we're, we're different in the way that we are investing. Like some people, if, you're, if your stock portfolio drops 10%, that might really scare you. Some other people might be really okay with it dropping 30%. That might be one difference of, of risk tolerances for people. The other is, I think that it should be based on what you're saving your money for in the long term too. You know, so not only a risk tolerance, but are you saving for a retirement? Are you saving for a vacation? Are you saving for a house? Saving for a charity. I mean, there's different goals that people put money to work for. And really, I think that there is no one flavor or one size fits all for different people. You've got to account for the risk tolerances, the industries they're comfortable with, the ultimate goal that they have, whatever it might be. And kind of in years past, Robert, you know, we had investing was, was kind of an afterthought. You had companies that were going to give you a pension, so you don't have to worry about retirement. And then it was kind of, okay, you got a 401k, you know, you've got some fund that you don't really know what's in it or how it's going, but you just kind of put money into it. And I think that, that nowadays, it's, it's more and more important to be actively involved in knowing, even at the company level, where your money's going and how well it's doing and tracking that over time. And so it, it really, to me, is a very personal thing. And we'll talk about this later in the show, but you know, one of those things that you mentioned is the decline that your stocks can go through. And that's a very personal thing. And we're experiencing that right now, probably for the first time for a lot of people that are listening to the show. A lot of people that have been investing even for the last decade, and a lot of people that are listening to the show fit into that category. And it's pretty much just been a straight line up. It's been a great bull market. And so they don't really know anything about going down. And so we might say personally that we can experience a 30% withdrawal or a downgrade in our account, and that's not going to hurt us emotionally or psychologically. And then it actually happens. And now is the first time to be able to to really experience that. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think I agree exactly with what you're saying about investing being personal. You also have a principle that says you're buying companies, not tickers. In my anecdotal experience, 
I've seen this to be a big disconnect for a lot of new investors. Why do you think that is? And what does it mean to buy companies, not tickers? So much of what we're seeing is stock prices are tied to financial results, right? Quarterly earnings, earnings per share, did they beat earnings, did they miss earnings? I mean, that's kind of the discussion that we've gotten used to hearing. But really, I, I kind of think of financial results as being the exhaust of the car based on how the driver is driving the car, right? So if you're behind a giant bus and you see this giant plume of black smoke hitting your windshield, it's probably because the driver of the bus is slamming on the accelerator right now. But maybe the bus isn't equipped to be slamming on the gas you know, or something like that. It's Financial results are an impact of business decisions that are still being made by management teams. And so to the point of companies are still what we're investing in, not tickers, it, it all goes back to the stock prices based upon financial results. Financial results are made are based upon business decisions, which are being made by management teams. And so we try to peel back to that third or fourth layer when we're analyzing companies where we're not just looking at earnings per share. We're not just looking at whether the stock is up or down 5% or 10% in the last quarter. We're looking fundamentally, who's driving the bus? Are they making the right decisions? And where are they investing in their future? Because three, five years out, that's going to be a lot more important than what the stock did these last couple of months. And you're actually owning a piece of that business. And that's why those business results are so important. You're not just trading a ticker or a blimp on a screen, which I think a lot of new investors think. That's just not the case. The case is that you're actually, albeit relatively small, you still have a small ownership stake in that business. And that's why it's not just a ticker on a screen. I think that's, that's great advice. Now, another principle of yours is that time is on your side. I think that's a very relevant one for the audience listening to the show today, given that the show is called Millennial Investing and that the majority of the audience falls between probably 22 and 35 years old, maybe 40. Why is this one of your principles and why is it so important? Well, if the people listening to me on this podcast only remember one thing and forget the rest of this interview even exists, the one thing I would encourage to think about is to start as early as you can in investing and invest for the longest period of time. Because companies, good companies, are compounding machines. And what I mean by that is if you've got cash sitting in the bank, but you've got a business that can use that cash to do something that's going to produce more than the current value of what that cash is right now, you should go out there and do that. And then all of a sudden, you, you've compounded that money, you've created excess value, which then you can share with your shareholders. And so the longer that you can think in terms of letting those businesses and those stocks compound for you is just a huge, huge advantage. There's another aspect to this question too of time being on your side that everyone is trying to play the short-term game right now. Day trading is a bad word in the investing world, at least for long-term investors like we are, because it's very, very hard to beat those. You know, you've, got, you've got so much algorithmic trading taking place right now. You've got Every single trade being monitored out there by high-frequency traders, you know, there's software that can monitor everything. This is very, very hard for individuals to compete against, unless you want to spend a ton of money to try to get on the same level as those guys. But there's really no software program, at least that I'm aware of right now, that can qualitatively look at decisions being made by a business manager or can you know, assess, okay, are they investing in the right things for R&D for the future? You know, what is this business going to look like three or five years out versus just, okay, who's trading, who's trading hands for the stock right now? Uh, and so the advantage, the real advantage that we have as individual investors, I think, is to think in, in longer terms. Because over time, even if stocks are out of favor for the time being, if you still have good businesses that goes back to that compounding over time, you're coming out ahead in three to five years, which is something that nobody else is playing in, in that field right now. I believe it was Albert Einstein that once said, 
compounding is the eighth wonder of the world. And he didn't say that for no reason. And compounding can't work for you if you don't have your money in the market and you don't give it time. So when you're the age of the people listening to the show and you and I, Simon, time is on our side as long as you let time do its thing. And, and what that means is you need to have your time in the market and have it invested and let it compound for you. You have a few more investing principles, but the last one that I want to talk about is valuation matters. In my opinion, we had seen over the last few years a lot of investors forgetting about valuation or just not putting much weight on it. But I think a lot of people in the audience are value investors and following the teachings of Warren Buffett. So they'll enjoy this talk about valuation. And I know I will as well, because hearing that you're, I know you're a growth guy. So knowing that this is one of your principles was interesting to me. Why is valuation important? And how do you decide when a business is so great that it actually deserves a bit of a premium? There's basically three ways that you can make money in the stock market, Papa Stocks. The first is fundamental improvement. So the business reports higher earnings per share over time, business grows, the stock grows. The second is just straight up dividends. Companies can pay out dividends from their, uh, from their cash hoard or from the earnings that they create. And then the third one is, is the valuation that stock, that, uh, that investors are willing to give any particular stock. And it's a continuum, right? I mean, we've kind of created these, these adjectives to make sense of it and categorize it into like value stock, like a Walmart or something that, you know, is not trading at a high multiple of those earnings or growth stock like Facebook, where people are willing to pay a little bit more because the business is growing faster. But it's all at the end of the day, a relative way to understand the expectations built into the company. And so valuation matters because you try to look for things where there's a disconnect, either on the value side or the growth side of that continuum, that just don't look quite right. right? Like If we see an evaluation for Walmart, that the company is being expected based on the, the stock price of today, that they're expecting the stock price to, or the company to grow at 40% a year, you'd say, wait a minute, no, that's, that's completely out of line. Walmart's supposed to grow a GDP. It's a retailer. Uh, on the other hand, if you've got a company that's, that's a growth quote unquote company that's been growing at 60, 70% a year, and people are saying the expectations are for 20% growth, uh, even though that's a premium to a company like Walmart, it still seems like it's out of whack. And, and so when we say valuation matters, we don't, we don't say that by meaning, oh, okay, well, just, just by undervalued companies or quote unquote value companies. We just really kind of mean it of, of what are the expectations that are kind of baked in to any current stock price and look for the disconnects because there's a lot of them, in my opinion, Robert, especially on the growth side of that, as you mentioned, companies that are really doing things differently, that are really innovative and, and doing some cool things, it's hard to value them because they don't grow up, go up in, a, in a straight line. Right, Chipotle, we can kind of figure out how much sales Chipotle is going to do next year versus this year. Walmart, we can probably kind of figure it out based on past transactions. Companies that are doing stuff in quantum computing or cloud computing or biotechnology, I mean, stuff like that is very hard to model because all of a sudden something really neat happens. And this is just shooting up, you know, uh, like an S curve, like a, like a hyperbolic growth rate. And so for me, the most interesting companies to invest in, again, as a self described growth investor, are those companies that I don't think are being modeled in a way that reflects what's really happening. But you've got to dig a little bit deeper. They're a little bit harder to understand, but the payout can be incredible if you find a couple of those in your portfolio. What you just said there highlighted two things that I want to dive a little deeper in. And one of the first things was you mentioned Walmart and just as an example. And you mentioned that based on the current price, you can extrapolate a expected growth rate for that company or what the market is expecting the company to grow at. 
dive into that a little bit for us. How can the price of a company illustrate what the market might be expecting for growth? So there's a couple different ways to do this. The fundamental way of, of doing investing analysis is based upon a discounted cash flow model. So if you talk to people that are really in the weeds, they're building out models of future growth rates for a company. And then after the company pays all of its operating costs, all of its material costs, all of its salaries, all of its capital expenditures, anything that it needs to run the business, it's still got cash left over at the end. That's free cash flow. And we can discount that back, depending on whatever discount rate we want to use, to the present to say, okay, that's the value of what these shares would be fairly valued at. So one way to do it is to just build out a model for every company in the stock market. Takes a lot of work, really hard to do, lots of inputs, lots of unknowns. But for companies that are easily modable, like those, the Walmarts and the Chipotles, that's, that's a really good way to value companies like that. The other completely different way of valuing companies is to kind of think about it in terms of market share and the addressable market that they're serving. And you can look at things like multiples, price to sales, price to gross margin, price to cash flow, price to earnings, whatever your flavor might be, and kind of see, is this company being valued in a way that makes sense of how fast they're growing into their market? And to do that, you can also kind of assess, okay, well, what is that market? And are they really making progress? Or is this just something that's a lot of hype that isn't really going to come true? And so it's kind of this one part science where you can really be quantitative about everything, one part art to investing where you can really be qualitative and kind of blend the two of those together, uh, knowing that it's not an exact science and it's very, very difficult, especially when there's very complex inputs that can have a lot of variance, but it can also be extremely rewarding because that's where you see these mispricings in the market. An actual example of that is Tesla, right? I have seen a price target for Tesla that said it was worth $10 a share in the worst case scenario. I have seen a price target for Tesla that says it's worth $7,000 a share. And these are professional investors that have that kind of variance out there. It could be anywhere in between based on any of those inputs going well or badly for the company. Uh, at the end of the day, you're still taking risks in the market. But we do tend to find the disconnects where it seems like it's out of whack with reality. And the reality with Tesla is that it's probably somewhere in between those two, although some would argue it's also zero. So that could be a possibility. But I'm willing to say it's between $10 and $7,000. I'll go on record and say it's worth somewhere between those. Although I'm no expert on Tesla by any means, I would probably bet in that range as well. So let's tie all of this together, all your investing principles and your overall strategy. And I want to talk about specifically how you analyze individual companies. Let's assume that you have some cash on the sidelines that you're ready to invest with. You have no watch list set up or any ideas that you're already interested in. Where do you start? What is the first step you take when looking for potential investments? So there's a hundred different ways to answer that question. Again, back to the different styles of investing. But for me personally, I've always been a guy that's gone out and gone to conferences, talked with people that are a heck of a lot smarter than I am, try to figure out what's going on in the market because there's really some big, big changes taking place. And from there, after I kind of understand those changes, I say, okay, where's the money going to be and which companies are going to take advantage of that and capitalize? And are they making the right decisions? Good management team, all that kind of stuff is important too. But at the end of the day, you want to look for markets that are growing, that can afford to grow and are willing to take on smaller companies that are able to take part of that share. I kind of start at the higher level. Where are the biggest changes taking place? I see some big changes taking place in medicine, healthcare right now. It's becoming much more objective where people are looking at data 
versus just subjectively treating symptoms and conditions. We're seeing genomics. I mean, getting right down to the DNA level of how we're built as human beings to treat conditions way in advance and proactively. I see a huge market in content that's being delivered where it's not just in these structured and bundled cable subscriptions anymore. We're now splitting that up into streaming. And what is that going to mean now that everybody's got Hulu and Cheddar and their Fox app and whatever else it is you can watch a la carte rather than um, paying a, a set amount for the cable bill every month. I think that's going to be a, a huge trend that's going. Cloud computing, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, I mean, stuff like this that's just changing everything that we knew. Sometimes $50 billion, sometimes $100 billion markets. Value finds a way to emerge over time. And the innovators out there, the companies that are doing things differently, have a lot to gain if they're in the right market with the right solutions. And so I always start at the top and say, what's going on in the market? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, 
If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. So you start with the industry or a trend or something along those lines, and then you drill down into that to find specific companies. Once you've identified the trend or the industry that you're interested in, how do you find those specific companies? So one example, I guess, would be... We can talk about the first example I gave was in medicine, right? So right now, there is an ability to... When, when patients... If, to detect cancer, to diagnose cancer. Right now, it's basically based on a tumor that they find. A patient showing symptoms, they come in, they notice there's a cancerous tumor. It's often in stage three or stage four. Very, very serious. Very much lower life expectancy when you catch it that late. But there's a lot of work being done right now. Again, that's a market change, right? This is how it's going right now. This is how we do this $100 billion war against cancer. But there's a lot of innovation right now. What if you can detect those tumors much, much earlier? And instead of detecting it directly from a biopsy of the tumor itself, you can detect it in the bloodstream. There's something called circulating tumor DNA, right? So there's these small fragments of a tumor's DNA that are floating around through the bloodstream. And through a simple blood test, you could catch something like that in phase one or super early instead of being phase three, phase four. Now, life expectancies go up significantly. The hospital costs go down significantly. And you've got healthier patients and a lower cost healthcare system because you're able to have a much improved diagnostic led me to a company called Gardent Health, which is one that I've recommended in the past. I'm still a huge fan of right now, which is basically the test that is catching the circulating tumor DNA of cancer. Right now, they're focusing still on late stage, but if you could proactively take a test for everybody that's over, I don't know, 55 years old, 65 years old, and catch this stuff proactively, that's a huge win for a lot of different people. And so that's kind of something that I discovered to answer your question. You look at the bigger picture What's the problem here? How can we solve it? Who's the right company that's doing that? And then there's other stuff too. You want to look and make sure that your CEO and your management team is doing the right things, making the right decisions. Insurance is a really big one for healthcare kind of related stuff. But it starts at the top of what's the problem and who's the company that's solving that. So I know we just talked about valuation a few minutes ago, but because of this example that you just brought up, I want to go back to that for a second. When you talk about this idea, I obviously can understand the massive implications that that could have and the value that that could create and the potential value for the stock if all of that comes to fruition. How do you even go about valuing something like that? Something like that right now is is very largely out of pocket. It could cost a couple thousand dollars to have one of those diagnostic tests done. But what if what if your insurance carrier picks that up? What if all of a sudden, you know, Medicare picks that up? All of a sudden, you're talking not a you're not talking about a five x increase right there. You're talking about a hundred, maybe a thousand x increase. And so that's one of those exponential growths that we're talking about. Something like that would be an event that would really have an implication. Same thing with biotechnology, right? Look at look at drugs. We've got a lot of companies right now that are kind of early stage biotech companies. A lot of neat, really really neat stuff going on too, and some some really cool stuff going on in life sciences. CRISPR is allowing for gene editing. Maybe some of the audiences has heard about kind of this stuff. CAR-T is another way where we can edit parts of the genome, make drugs that are more personally fit for certain patients. 
Things like this, again, are very hard to model with current valuations because you're either betting it's going to work or it's not going to work. It's very hard to have a middle ground. Okay, is a drug going to get approved or is it not going to get approved? Well, you kind of can build out decision trees and things like that. But if it works and if this succeeds, that's a huge win for the valuation. And that's why you see these pops. And I mean, it's not as dramatic as biotech everywhere out there, but there is a lot of that in technology where you've got small companies that got to get a hit with some big companies really quickly. Software as a service is something that we've been talking about quite a bit lately because there is very low startup costs other than R&D you know, and, and acquisition of, of new customers. I mean, building things in the cloud is so much less expensive than it used to be to develop software. So all of a sudden, you've got 90% gross margins. You get some big customers on board that are adding thousands of seats at large corporations. Boom, you're set. You're a small company that gets a big win with a really big corporation. And now every other corporation that there's competitor, there's a competitor that wants to do what that company is doing. I mean, you can see things like that become you know, what we've kind of called multi-baggers, worth 100% or more of, of their current value in a, in a very short period of time. Put a couple of those in a portfolio that can forgive a lot of other mistakes, or even if not mistakes, other bets that you're making in growth style investing. And the math still works out that you're making really good money over the long term. This whole piece of the conversation brings me back to what we talked about earlier of it being personal. Someone who's taking this type of approach and making bets on these types of companies needs to understand how they think about this and how they'll feel if that company goes to zero and another company that they bet on went 2x, 3x. They need to understand if they're emotionally okay with that, if that's the strategy that fits them well. So I just wanted to, to mention that because this is a strategy that can definitely work if it's right for you, but it has to be right for you. For me, it's not necessarily right. I'm more of a value guy, but I know a lot of people have done very well with it. And I think it is a good strategy for a lot of people. I don't think there's anything wrong with the strategy itself. It's again, just personal and you need to make sure that it aligns with you. It's actually a caution. You know, it, it, growth style investing is kind of exciting, right? You're looking at some cutting edge stuff. You know, everyone kind of wants to see what the future is going. It's really kind of a fun thing to talk about. But there are some pitfalls for it too that I do want to caution people that they're, you know, for every, for every Netflix, for every Amazon, for every company out there that's really been a big winner in the stock market, there are a lot that don't work out too. And so just investing in a company because you see headlines about it or you're excited about the future isn't the right way to think about it. And the higher risk, yes, it means higher reward, but it also means higher percentage chance of not being rewarding too, right? I mean, you can have companies go bankrupt if their trial doesn't pass in biotech. You can have companies that spend all their money on developing a software and then nobody wants to buy it because you know it just didn't, it wasn't the right time, whatever it is. And so we never, in back to the being personal thing, we never encourage anybody to go all in on any one company. You have to balance that and take small bets. You can add to over time. There's plenty of time in investing. It's a long-term game. This is a years-long, decades-long game. Don't feel the rush uh, or the fear of missing out to just go put all of your money on the greatest new pot stock you heard about you know, from your uncle last week. There's nothing wrong with taking high-risk bets, but there's also pitfalls that I would caution against of getting too excited without really seeing a long-term progress from a company you're investing. So we've identified some trends in some industries first, and then we decided that we look into specific companies in those trends. So now we have a list of companies that we're interested in. Where do we go from here? Do you dive into the company's 10Ks? Do you look at their financial statements? Do you look at their annual report? Maybe you look into the management team? Yes to all of the above. Those are all excellent, excellent things for investors to do. I would encourage everything that you just mentioned. Definitely look through the 10K, the annual report. 
I also look at the proxy. Every year, a company puts out what's called a proxy, which explains who owns the company, who owns what percentage of shares of that company, and how the management team is getting paid. So every publicly traded company has an executive compensation plan that's been approved by shareholders, explains what metrics they need to hit to get paid on certain things. We, we want to see companies that are not only growing the top line in sales, but they're also growing the bottom line you know, in profits, or even better cash flows, or even better return on invested capital. I mean, you want to see stuff that, again, like we were talking about, discounted cash flows. We want to see something that's accruing for the good of investors rather than just growing at the top line. And then one thing that, that I spend a lot of time thinking about, which I think is unique out there, is the R&D line item of the, of the income statement. And again, that's reported also in the, uh, in the annual report and an update every quarter too of basically how is a company spending its money and why are they doing that, right? Are they doing that just to keep steady as she goes, keeping the same business that they're doing? Or is it somebody like Elon Musk with Tesla who's plowing money into building a gigafactory in China right now because he's so convinced that his Teslas are going to sell in China? And you know, he, on top of that, he's plowing money into autonomous driving, right? Because he's so convinced that this full self-driving mode for his vehicles is going to be a huge competitive advantage versus his, his, the other companies. And so you know, think what you want of Tesla. Some people are very bearish. Some people are very bullish. Uh, some people think Elon Musk is brilliant. Other people don't. You know, they have a different adjective to describe him. But you think about those kind of things. And, and Tesla could just look like the same car company it is today, where it's churning out 400,000 vehicles a year. It's got the Model 3. It could be banking all of that money that it's making, but it's not. Elon is plowing that aggressively into new ventures. And the art part of investing is figuring out what does that mean? Is that going to be worth it? Or is he lighting money on fire and we're all going to lose a lot of money from this? Disclosure, I am a Tesla shareholder. I have a lot of faith in a lot of those activities that he's doing. But stuff like that, you've got to really look at because so much of investing is in the future. So once we've found those companies and we've dove into those different reports, we probably have a dozen, couple dozen, maybe even hundred or so different companies. Where do you specifically look first to maybe eliminate some companies right off the bat? Because in reality, with all of those different companies to analyze, nobody has, you know, people just don't have enough time for that unless they're a full-time investor. And then even then, they might not have time. So where do you look first after you've identified the trend in the industry and then you have a list of companies? Where do you look first to eliminate the companies right off the bat so that you could dive into the ones that are more promising? The first one that would be a kind of a deal breaker is, is just a, a management team that you don't have faith in, right? Even if you've got a great trend, a great market, a lot of money at stake, if you can't trust the management to make the right decisions, deal breaker. You want to look for a management team that has successfully led a company in the past, or at least has relative experience that's directly applicable. There's a lot of companies out there that are in the right place at the right time, and they're never going to make any, any shareholder value for you. So it can go both ways. Even if you have a great market, if you don't have a great management team, you're not taking full advantage of that. And then the second thing that I would, this is something I would encourage all investors to do, is come up with specific metrics that are very important for that company. And the more specific and company specific, the better. And it doesn't have to be revenue growth or earnings growth or stuff like that that institutions tend to get overly obsessed with. For Tesla, it could be the error rate of their self driving cars, right? Are they significantly safer? In terms of errors per you know thousand miles driven or whatever you want to look at, are they safer than the other cars that are being developed? And that's going to win over the regulators, and then all of a sudden they're going to be allowed to be in states that other places aren't, and you're going to have available for for more production, more deliveries, and more purchases. Or China, I mean, are they selling the cars in China? Is the Gigafactory paying off? That's something Tesla specific 
that you could see would be very important. And then you can start getting a feel for, okay, are these companies performing where it matters? And if you can answer those questions, you're ahead of 98% of the investing world out there because you're thinking at a, at a higher level about what really matters for this company to produce meaningful cash flows for its, for its shareholders. And if you are dissecting the company's annual report, the company's quarterly results, all of those things that we talked about before, it really gives you a huge advantage, especially if you're investing for the long term. That reminds me of a book I, I once read called Measure What Matters. And it's all about developing KPIs for your business and really measuring you know, what matters for that specific business and not worrying about different metrics, different KPIs that matter for other businesses. If it doesn't matter for your business, then it, you don't need to focus on it. And it's the same for what you just said is look at the business that you're considering analyzing, make your own KPIs, and then track those and see how business is doing. And what's great about that is you can unlock a lot of value there if you notice something in your KPIs that maybe someone else doesn't. Because a lot of people are valuing companies or analyzing companies based on traditional metrics, like you mentioned, that Wall Street is obsessed with. So if you can find the right KPIs to analyze a company that might be a little bit under the radar, but it really is a key indicator as to how that company is going to perform, you can unlock a lot of value. I mean, his point is, is so true. I mean, I think if you really focus on the KPIs, that's what matters. I mean, if, if people are always focused on earnings per share, right? But to your point about Tesla, and I definitely don't know everything about Tesla, I, I really don't know a ton about it, but I'd be willing to bet that the EPS, the earnings per share of Tesla, probably isn't that important to the long term success of Tesla. Whereas the error rate, like you said, that's probably very important. And if you make that a KPI and you track that and you see it moving in the right direction, that's probably a lot more important than the EPS. While Wall Street's probably going to tell you that the EPS is more important. So it's just one of those things that you need to get a little bit more familiar with the business, develop your own KPIs, and then make your thesis around that. Let's be fair too, Robert. I mean, the stock market is starting to look more like the venture capital market every year. Right, Silicon Valley has changed the way that people invest because it's not just about capital anymore. Right, it used to be, you know, 50 years ago, if you had the chemical plant and nobody else had the money to build a chemical plant, you owned the market. Right, even before that, Standard Oil, you had the oil refineries, nobody else had them. That was your competitive advantage. But now there's money out there for everything, and so the advantage has to shift from being capital and and steel in the ground and factories to something that's a little bit more ethereal, like data. We've always heard data is a new oil. Okay, yeah. Who's harnessing that? Who's taking advantage of that? How do you build a competitive advantage out of that? And that's something that these venture capitalists like John Doerr has figured out for decades. It's like, okay, you have to look at something different than what everybody else is looking out there because those are the companies that are shaping the future. It's a fascinating time to be an investor. And I mean, I talk about this from experience and I am by no means an expert or a perfect investor. But when I first got started, I was investing entirely based on Wall Street traditional metrics. I'd run a discounted cash flow analysis. I'd say, okay, this is trading at a low PE. This must be undervalued. And I'd buy it. Little did I know, I was inexperienced at the time. I didn't understand that there was no catalyst on the horizon for the market to realize the quote unquote undervalued that I saw. And I just wasn't looking at the right KPIs for the businesses. Maybe the earnings per share that I was valuing didn't matter. And so I'm just talking about this from experience. I've learned over the years that you need to find the things that and it might even be qualitative. It might not even be a specific data point, but it's a KPI that you need to watch. And that's where you can really unlock a lot of value. Now, you mentioned the management team is probably that first thing you look at to eliminate a company before spending hours researching it. Is that a purely qualitative thing or are there metrics that we can look at to really identify a good management team? I think it is mostly qualitative. You know, you can have some metrics that are that are spelled out that are a little bit 
those are harder numbers that are written into the comp plan that they have. Or if they are saying, even better, if they're saying on the conference calls, here's the internal metrics that we are holding ourselves accountable to. I mean, that's something that's a little bit more quantitative, but management is, is such a, is such a, you know, back to the art versus science, is such an art thing. Are they being upfront with you about things that are going on out there? Starbucks, the CEO got right ahead of this coronavirus thing and said, hey, this is what's going on out there. We're significantly reducing our 2020 guidance before almost any other company was saying anything, right? They were ahead of the game and the stock took a hit for that. But you've got to applaud a management team that's willing to go out there on, on record and say something. Acquisitions are notoriously overly bullish. People get too excited about buying a company and bringing them in, talking about these financial synergies and all this kind of stuff. But you have to have an objective look to those. And some management teams do that and other management teams don't. One company I really like right now is a company called Broadcom because their CEO is objective to the max about making acquisitions. And where a lot of companies don't do really good acquisitions, Broadcom always does good at... Not always. Very, very often does great acquisitions. And that's creating value over time. So, so stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, there's one part that's the numbers part of it, but I think even more so is the track record and the have they earned your trust as an investor in that company. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. 
but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Just to bring it back to the personal piece is that some people are going to be okay with a management team doing one thing and they'll earn your trust that way. And somebody else is going to be different and they're going to be willing to accept management's trust by them doing something else. So two different people can look at a management team and decide this is a great management team or this isn't the right management team for me. I'm not necessarily trusting them with my capital or running this business. So again, bringing it back to personal, a lot of things are investing are personal. So at what point would you say that you've gathered enough information and you've conducted enough research that you're comfortable to start a position? If you become comfortable that you think that you've kind of looked through the, the annual report, you're comfortable with the management team, you see what you like, you've kind of got some metrics, maybe that's a great time to take a small stake in the company. Don't back the truck up and say, oh, okay, I read the, the 10K. Here's my life savings. I'm putting it all into one company. I mean, that's basically like going to Vegas, right? You have the same odds and something like that. But if you do it a little bit more measured, in an approach where you say, okay, I like what I see. Maybe I put it in a really small position. It could just be a hundred bucks. You can buy fractional shares in the market now. Uh, and then nobody's charging commissions anymore. So it, it, there's really, you can buy Amazon, which is trading for several thousands of dollars a share. You can buy $10 worth of Amazon right now if you wanted to, just to get you some skin in the game to see an actual number attached to it and see how that's doing over time. And then what I like to do is personally add to positions that I see doing well a second time, a third time, a fourth time whatever it might be, until I reach a certain maximum amount that I want to invest in a company. And so that gets me started by saying, okay, I, I see what I like. Here's a little bit of money. And then just like so many venture capitalists do out there, they have a second series, you know, a third series, whatever, that if they like where the company is going, they'll invest more money over time. You can do the same thing as an individual investor. If you like everything that you see that the company's doing, you can buy more and more of its stock over time. Yeah, I like that point that you mentioned about no trading commissions because that's made an impact on how I invest. I would analyze a company for a little bit, not be sure whether I wanted to invest in it or not, and I'd add it to a watch list. The problem with that is I wouldn't necessarily always remember to go back to the watch list. I'm not a full time investor, so sometimes it would kind of fall to the back burner and I would forget to look at it or I'd forget what I researched before and I just didn't have the skin in the game. So I wasn't super interested in doing the due diligence I needed to to invest in that company. But now, because I have no trading commissions, I can buy one share or I can buy even a fraction of a share just to get that in my portfolio. Now I'm looking at it. Every time I check my portfolio, I know it's there. I have skin in the game. And now I really put in the effort to do the due diligence and read all of the different reports that I need to do the research I need to to be comfortable with that company. And then at that point, I can either sell the stock because I decided my thesis that my initial thesis that I thought that was relatively surface level wasn't true. Or maybe I double down on it because I decide that it was true and this really is a good thesis. And then I add more to it and grow into my position, just like you said. So for me personally, one of the biggest things I've learned about investing in stocks is that it's not enough to pick the right companies. That's obviously a very important part, but it's only part of the equation. You're not investing in a vacuum. So even if the company you're looking to invest in turns out to be great, 
if you were considering another company or investment opportunity that turns out to be better, you actually had a less than optimal portfolio allocation. So when making a decision to buy a company's stock or not, how much do you weigh other potential investment opportunities in comparison to the company you're considering? So that's a two-beer conversation. That's a very difficult question to answer. It's a very personal question to answer because it's all about allocation, right? And it's always easier to buy stocks than to sell stocks. And allocation, what I mean by that is, okay, you found five companies you like, you buy all five of them, equal amounts for each one of them. But then which ones do you add to? Do you want to sell one of those? Should one of those really still be a 20% stake in your portfolio? All of these are, are difficult. And there's no magic answer for any of them. The only thing I would, I would recommend is to put the highest allocation into the, the companies you have the most conviction in. And the old school way of thinking of this was, okay, we'll put the most percentage of your portfolio in the lowest risk company, right? If you've got Tesla and you've got Walmart, put more money in Walmart because Walmart's going to be around tomorrow and we think Elon might be crazy and be spending all of his money on crazy things, right? That was kind of the old way of thinking about things. But that doesn't really account for the fact that there are companies out there that are quote unquote growth companies or riskier companies that either because they're priced incorrectly or they've got such phenomenal opportunities or they've got the right leadership team in place, whatever it is, it's okay to have, in my opinion, larger percentages to smaller companies that are riskier. But I mean, back to the, I mean, back to the question though, it's, it's all personal. It's all opportunity costs. As an investor, you've got to always be thinking in terms of, okay, this isn't just one company I like anymore. Now I'm investing in 10 companies and 20 companies and 50 companies or whatever it is. That will influence the overall returns of your portfolio. And you want to maximize your returns, not necessarily just invest in low risk stocks. At least for me personally, I'm, I'm always thinking about in terms of opportunity costs and I balance my allocation. And I'm not afraid to take a 20% stake in a company, even as a risky growth style investment, if I really believe in its future. I bring that up because I feel the same way. I think it's so important. And recently over the last couple of years, it's one of the things that I've really been focusing on with my investing is that opportunity cost. Because when I was first starting, I'd run my discounted cash flow, it would look good, I'd buy it. And then in a month, I'd want to buy another company because that looked even better, but I'd have no cash left. And so then I might have to sell that other company, but I didn't give it time for my thesis to play out. So maybe I had a loss. And so then I had to sell that for a loss to buy this other company. And it just didn't seem like the optimal way to invest. And so I started to do some research into that. I started to read a lot about this opportunity cost idea. And it's been even more prevalent lately with this market decline because we have a Facebook group where people that are part of the community that enjoy the podcast go and we all talk about stocks, real estate investing, all kinds of different uh, investing topics. And a lot of people have been pitching Carnival Cruise Lines. And I said to almost every person, I said, that might be the right investment for you and it might do great. But for me, that opportunity cost of what that would do versus what I could invest that money in, it just isn't right. For me, I'm a very big bull on MasterCard. And so I tell these people, I said, could I invest that money in Carnival Cruise Lines or could I put that in MasterCard? And so when I think about those two things, it's the opportunity cost. Maybe Carnival Cruise Lines, which is ticker CCL, would turn out to be great. But for me, that opportunity cost, I'd rather have that in MasterCard. And so that's, that's really the reason as to why I wanted to ask that, that tough question of you. And it's a great question too. And I mean, like, it goes back to being personal again, right? It, there's no right or wrong way to be an investor, right? I mean, the, at the end of the day, if you're investing in a lower risk company, 
that is paying out most of its money as dividends, where it just says, okay, we don't want to spend all of our money on growth. We don't want to build a gigafactory in Shanghai. We want to distribute it out as cash to you as a dividend. There is nothing wrong with that. You can sleep very well at night just saying, hey, every three months, I'm getting a dividend check from this company. You know, at the end of the year, is is adding up to maybe four or five percent. I mean, think about a company like Lowe's, right? Lowe's has very mature operations, home improvement, great. They've got a, a you know reliable customer base, great. They don't need to go out and build ten thousand more stores. So they say, okay, we made a lot of money this year. We're going to give it back to you as a dividend. This is an income investment. Now, Lowe's is not going to shoot to the moon because there's, I mean, it just at least how the business is built today, it's not going to increase. At least we don't think. 400% in the next year. But are you comfortable getting dividends because that's a lower risk thing that makes you feel good as an investor? There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's a great strategy that if you start taking those dividends, reinvesting them over time and buying more stock that's then paying you more dividends, you add that up over 10 years. I mean, we're talking to millennials on this podcast. 10, 20 years of a company like that can be worth a fortune when you start pulling money out of that investment. And so there's different styles. You don't always have to shoot for the moon. There's a, a lot of excitement in growth companies, but there's also a lot of excitement in making a lot of money on a steady growing company too. Yeah, believe it or not, I've actually seen a lot of millennials recently take an interest in dividend investing. I've seen on YouTube and just across different social media platforms, I've seen a lot of millennials be interested in dividend paying stocks. It's really interesting to me. I think that's because of the rise in financial freedom and the FIRE movement, which is financial independence retire early and dividends play into that. So I think that's a big component of it, but it's interesting to see that trend. Now, a part of this conversation that goes very well with is I've seen you talk about upgrading your portfolio and I find it to be a very interesting concept. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Tell us what you mean by this and why it's important for investors to consider. So I mean, bottom line right now, everything's on sale. I mean, the market is down what, 25% uh, in the last, I believe, month. Don't quote me on that. But the S&P is down definitely over 20% in the last month. So, so you've got really high quality companies that are selling at a discount from where they were a month. And so the idea is, you know, rather than be paralyzed and say, okay, I'm not buying anything. I've already invested all my money. I don't have any cash. I don't want to invest any more money on the, into the stock market. There is nothing wrong with selling positions that have decreased in value if you can buy something else that has also decreased in value that you think is a better opportunity. And so the question becomes then of how do you define quality? Is it a cultural advantage that they have, the decision-making process that they're doing better? Is it regulations? Is it growth of the market that they're taking advantage of? I mean, you've got a zillion different metrics and things that you can look at, but I have been taking advantage this past month to, even though they've decreased in value during the past 30 days, selling some of those what I consider lower quality companies to buy what I also qualitatively are thinking of higher quality companies. And I think that in the long term, you want to look for, for quality and that's going to that's gonna pay off. So we've alluded to it a few times and we probably couldn't record a podcast episode right now, which is March 24th, 2020, without at least mentioning the current environment that we're in, which is the stock market crash of 2020. Some people are calling it and the COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. How has this impacted the investing landscape? What long-term impact do you see this having on stocks? So this is a great question because every crisis brings opportunities with it. Every time something really bad happens to the economy, there's a permanent change that happens. 2001, dot-com bubble bursts. All of a sudden, every company that was really overvalued based on the web traffic and the advertising that it was that it was attracting had to rethink things and say, okay, we need to start be focusing on more predictable cash flows. They start shifting to being subscription-based instead of advertising-based. 
2008, same thing happens, financial crisis, right? Weak internal controls for a lot of financial institutions. They said, we got to look at some different data. We got to make better loans. And so you start seeing these alternative lenders popping up, this new fintech movement, which one of the guys on my team, Matt Cochran, is really looking at fintech companies right now. Incredible, incredible opportunity because companies are starting to realize we got to get smarter about making better loans all across financial services. In my opinion, Robert, coronavirus crisis is going to accelerate the shift of things that are not already being done on the internet to being done on the internet. We already know Amazon's an awesome company, but it doesn't have everybody in the world buying from Amazon. And if you weren't buying online for retail, you're doing it this last month, right? You're on lockdown at your home. You're not going to the bricks and mortar retailers anymore. You're having to learn about this crazy thing called the internet where you can buy things through e-commerce. So that's going to be a, a huge jump in that. And the other big change is going to be, in my opinion, that healthcare is going to start moving online. We are seeing a spike that our hospital system cannot handle right now. There are too many patients going in. It's craziness in the hospitals. I've got some buddies who are doctors. They say it's, it's very overwhelming right now. And so there has to be a way that patients can get diagnosed for simple conditions that are not life-threatening at home. You can do that over telehealth. You can do consultations with doctors over the internet now. And it has to be an easier way to get low-cost healthcare and drugs to them too. And so we're starting to see pharmacies where you can actually go into minute clinics. If you've seen minute clinics, you can actually go to grocery stores, CVS stores, things like this, and get checked out for simple conditions and get prescriptions written right there. There has to be a lower-cost healthcare system that's more available to where people are rather than just jamming everybody into the hospital. Yeah, I am a big fan of the fintech movement myself. Three of my five biggest positions are in the fintech space. I'm a huge fan of that. A lot of my background is in financial services. I understand that. It's in my, comp- my circle of competency really well. So it's an area I really like. And then to your point about things going online, I completely agree. I see it the same way. I've heard a lot of... My company was already that I work for full-time outside of the podcast was already pretty progressive in terms of using technology. But I mean, we've even been talking about how this is going to change our business and how we can do X, Y, and Z online now going forward when we hadn't done it before, not because we couldn't, just because we never, you know, why change something that was working? We never thought we, we needed to. And so now going forward, that's going to be a big change. And then to your point about the, the health, I, I agree with that as well. I was a shareholder of Teladoc. I had the same kind of thesis a while ago. Unfortunately, I owned it around 50s and I sold it around, I think it was around 70s or 80s. If you look at the stock today, I believe it's up around 130, 140. So a little premature selling on my, my side, but, but uh, I, de- I definitely do agree that that trend is, is going that way. So in a time where there is so much volatility and so much concern, both economically and from a public health perspective, how are you approaching investing at a time where we're experiencing a black swan event? I've been buying stocks even, even as they've been decreasing. I've been seeing them fall 10% uh, right after I buy them, which been, generally when I buy a stock, it, it, over the next 10 minutes, it drops 10%. I guess it's a curse. I don't know. Maybe that's, I mean, and it used to be that that 10% move in a single day was a big deal. Do you remember when that was a big deal? It's not a big deal anymore to see a stock uh, increase or decrease in value in 10%. It's crazy times. But I mean, at at the end of the day, it it doesn't bother me if you're investing in years instead of minutes or days or months. It it doesn't matter. The goal is to make money in the stock market. It's very difficult to time this thing. There's so many variables. It's almost impossible to call where the bottom is going to be for the market in general or even for any, any specific position. But when you see, again, these really high quality names going decreasing 30, 50% in, in a month, that gives you a really nice margin of safety as an investor. And so I have been very actively putting cash to work 
I think this is right now, even today, even after the market, I mean, we're, we're filming here on the 24th. This today was the best performing day for the Dow since 1933. The, the Dow was up over 10% today. It's incredible. But even today, we still haven't gotten back a lot of those losses from the past month in coronavirus. And it could still fall worse from here, depending on what Washington does, depending on how the treatments and, and the hopeful eventual vaccine goes. There's still a lot of variables out there. But I think of investing in, in terms of years, I, I think this is a great opportunity. Don't get too concerned over a day or a week if you're investing for five years. Look at the stock chart over five years instead of five minutes. What do you think is the biggest mistake you see new investors making? And how can listeners of this show avoid that same mistake? I think that the biggest mistake for, for most investors, not even beginning investors, but just investors in general, is, is selling too quickly. And that goes for me as well, too, though. You know, I, there were stocks I was buying in 2008, which was the last really big crisis we had, that I thought I was the king of the world because I got 100% return on it. I was like, oh man, this is great. This company that I bought, it doubled in price. I got to sell. I, I got to take my gains in, right? And then you see it go on 200%, 300%, 400% gain. And you say, man, how much money did I leave on the table? I got so excited about selling something for a gain that I lost track of the long-term focus I told myself that I needed to have. And so my piece of advice would be, don't anchor on the percentage return that you've made or that you've lost. Every day in the stock market is a new day, and the market doesn't care what percentage you made or lost on your stock. It's going to go on and do its thing. And the companies that are creating value, if they're continuing to do a good job with that, and you don't need the money to pay for you know, your mortgage, or whatever bills you have, that money shouldn't be in the stock market anyway. But if you're investing in the stock market, let your winners run. Don't, don't be fixed on, on getting too excited about a double of a stock. Selling is very hard. It's much harder than buying. But my one piece of advice would only sell if there's something you really don't like, rather than just you get excited about the amount of money. It's funny that you mentioned that. And it's actually very timely for me because I bought a small position in Zoom not that long ago. It's up over 100%, 120%, I think, in a relatively short period of time. Now I'm grappling with that exact dynamic that you just mentioned of it's up 100%, over 100%. It's doubled. Now what do I do? Do I sell it, take my gains into something else, or do I continue to let it run? I think I'm going to fall on the side of exactly what you mentioned. I'm just going to continue to let it run. I like the company. I still believe in the thesis. I'm just going to continue to let it run from here. There hasn't been a, been a material change. What is a common piece of advice that you hear experts giving, whether it be on social media, just generally across the internet, that you don't necessarily think is great advice? And how would you make it into good advice? Well, the first thing is turn the other direction and run. If you ever hear anybody say the trend is your friend, right? I mean, we, we spend way too much time looking at, at stuff like that. And that's not fundamental stock market analysis, in my opinion. The second thing is, I think there's this, this kind of conventional wisdom that when the market is falling, you're supposed to be more conservative, right? Like, oh, the stock market's going down, sell all your stocks and go to cash, or you know, double down on value stocks or conservative stocks. I don't really agree with that. I think that when the market falls, there's a lot more opportunities that can still be growth style investing. And if you look at the returns, I mean, beta, you know, as you know, in financial services, this is a great way to kind of measure how much a company is going to, or how much a stock is going to return based on the broader market. When things go badly, smaller growth companies that are riskier tend to get hammered, right? They sell off like crazy. But then when things turn around, they also tend to have really good returns. There are more people, they have thinner trading volumes, there are less people in them, lower market caps for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so the adage of go 
conservative and put all your money in cash during a downturn kind of defeats that the mathematics of that, right? You, you want to be going for the opportunities when there's a market downturn. It's a huge opportunity for you as an investor, especially an individual investor when there's a lot of money in funds that they don't want to be taking those calls from clients saying, oh, why are you putting me in growth style investment? Why are you buying these small market cap companies? I want all my money in cash right now. I mean, you don't have those same kind of rules. So my advice would be take every crisis as an opportunity to be a long-term investor. There's so much more that I'd love to talk about. I could talk for hours about this stuff. So we'll have to have you back on the show again. But I know I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed this conversation. So I can only imagine that the audience will as well. Where can those listening to the show today go to learn more about you and connect with you further? Thank you for this opportunity, Robert. We're all, everyone in, in my company is big fans of your podcast and of you as well. We're, I'm very honored to be here. You can check out our site at seveninvesting.com. We are also very actively involved on Twitter. I am personally at Seven Innovator on Twitter. We also have a handle for our company at Seven Investing. And again, back to our mission statement is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that through our subscription by offering our best stock ideas. Uh, which is what I just mentioned, but we're also really trying to help people out there too. So please send us questions on Twitter. We'll answer them. Send us direct messages on, on Twitter. We'll answer them. We are here to serve you as individual investors. We want to empower people. There's no dumb questions. We're all learning from this together. I think that the stock market is the greatest wealth building tool for people that's available. And there's a lot to learn that we can learn from each other out there. It'll provide for whatever it is you're willing to save your money for in the future. And we really want to empower that mission. So please feel free to reach out to us. We've got a lot of free stuff on our website. We're really excited about what we're doing. Simon, thanks so much for those kind words. I really appreciate it. I'll be sure to put links to everything that Simon just mentioned in the show notes so that everybody listening to the show can go check that out. I'll also put links to various different resources that relate to the topics that we talked about throughout the show. So you can go read up on that more as well. And I'm a big fan of everything Simon's doing and his team. I follow them all on Twitter. We're all very active. Definitely be sure to go follow them. They're great follows. You'll learn a ton of great information. Social media won't be so much of a time suck anymore. You'll actually be able to use it as an educational opportunity. So I really highly recommend you go do that. Simon, thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.